You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahraven.com. Welcome to Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange with me, Arthur Parkinson, and my friend Sarah Raven. This week, Sarah is taking a break because the Perch Hill Open Days are upon her and it's very busy at Perch Hill. But I'm joined by two friends today, actually, friends that I've never met, however, Claire and Ian Nichols, who run Epping Good Honey. And I've followed them on Instagram now for what feels like quite a while. It's been a wonderful time following them, though, because they are artisan beekeepers. They're based in the UK in the Epping Forest hence their name of Epping Good Honey. And they produce small batches of honey from their honeybees. And I'm looking at the most beautiful jar, a hexagon shaped jar, 227 grams of the most beautiful honey. Claire and Ian visited my garden and I wasn't in to my shame in Nottingham. And they left the most beautiful box full of honey and it's kept me going all through the winter actually. It's the most beautiful proper honey. It tastes very different to shop-bought honey. And what I love about their Instagram is they're very much about caring for bees. It's not just producing from bees. They know so much about honeybees that I had no idea of before I started following them. So today is all about talking about honeybees and how we can look after them, whether we keep them or simply garden for bees. Hello, Claire and Ian. Hello. Hello. Really good to talk to you. Thank you for having us. Pleasure. So I suppose I should start. You're a man and wife team. How does that work? And did bees bring you together, I suppose, should be my first question. Um, bees didn't bring us together. Um, <laughs> we're both sort of from fine art and design backgrounds. Um, and our fathers were both engineers. And we met actually at a private view in London. So not bees, but it's amazing how many people you do get to meet with bees. And it's, it's quite wonderful. When did the beekeeping start then between you both? Was it was it you, Claire, or was it you, Ian? Which one of you were the most passionate about the bees? Ian is the beekeeper and I do everything else. <laughs> okay. And it's like a, it was a piece of string that kept on coming, you know, you kept on pulling and the more you do, the more you become obsessed. I Probably it's the same with lots of things, gardening, plants, anything. And the more you do it, the more you see of the challenge and the more you want to battle away and get it done. I don't know where it comes from. So did you just start off with one hive? Yeah, you always sort of traditionally start off with the like the one pot plant, the one hive, and then it just grows. And mm. bees tend to make more of themselves. And where I grew up was the sort of land of ag lab, where most ag lab people would have bees as a supplementary income. And... I suppose that's where I first came across bees, but then you think bees are made done by old people, and now it seems to be done by everybody, to better or worse. And when did it become in more of a? This is sort of like your main living, isn't it? Now, no, I have a, I have another day job, is which is, uh, yeah, this is this right. is two. So it's still that's why it's still artisan. Yeah, I have two income streams. Yeah, right. And I suppose that's what makes your honey artisan, isn't it? Because you're not reliant on the bees to produce and produce and produce. You're keeping them in quite a, a good life sort of, of module. Yeah, I don't need, we don't need tonnage, you know. If you're going to earn money from beekeeping, it's probably the same as nurseries and plants. You need to produce a lot of plants to, to keep going or you have a, a private income. 
So we'll just have a second, I have a second income. So how many, how many hives have you got then? As a, oh, as I, a can't, general... I, can't, I can't tell you the number fluctuates. <laughs> Goes up and down. Okay. So. Well, why does it fluctuate then? Well, in the spring, they have spring build-up, so you want to divide hives because if you're a beekeeper, you're trying to keep bees and not let them swarm, and you're also trying to keep them in good health. Mm. And in the winter, you can sometimes you can have winter deaths, and the numbers go down, and numbers go up, and then in the autumn, you might want to combine two colonies together again to make them strong, to get them through the winter. Is um, yeah, it's a challenge, but uh, yeah. And are you checking on the bees every day? Is it is it like keeping chickens or having plants? Are you having to go out? I check them at least. Try and check them about between every seven and ten days. If we've had bad weather, or I think there's something wrong with the bees, I will go back and check that hive. But generally, I've got a good idea of what's going on with each colony. And your beehives, are they close to where you live? Have you, do you have to walk into the Epping Forest to go and visit them? Uh, no, they're, they're, they're all in private spaces. And they, the furthest colonies I've got are about 10 miles away. So they go up through, mm. the, uh, up through the Epping Forest. We're based at the northeast of London and it goes up. We're, sort of, we're, we're based at the, the southern tip of Epping Forest. And the bees don't live with us. They live in out apiaries. Um, number of our apiaries up through the forest towards Epping. So from where we live to Epping is, is our sort of patch. And that's the district of Epping Forest, which yeah. which is an ancient woodland. Um, so the bees have got access to fly across that area, that terroir, but also local gardens as well. And that's why gardening is really important for pollinators, not just our honeybees, but all sorts of different beneficial insects. So we can all do our bit to, to help them along. Uh, how often do you go and see the bees, Claire? Is is the logo of Epping Good Honey and, and the way you've sort of gone on Instagram with the honeybees, is that more your remit? Yeah, so Ian is the beekeeper completely mm. um, and his day job is dealing with bee disease. So he's well-placed to, to sort of inspect our own bees. But um, So Epping Good Honey is completely ours and it's a small thing that's grown and sort of taken over our lives really. So he's the beekeeper, but I do the Instagram and the orders and the jarring and the well, all the other admin stuff to make sure that everybody's got what they need. Yeah. So we used to do markets before COVID, but it, it just got a bit too tricky. And in a way, that's good. We supply our local community first and foremost with local honey. And that's, that was only because we were producing too much that we couldn't eat it all. So um, that was the sort of the, the shift from having a, a couple of hives uh, to then being quite good at it and um, producing so much that we couldn't, you know, foist it on other friends and family. And so we just thought, well, let's let's see what happens. So we started selling it in little local markets and then got community sort of delis and independent stockists locally. And then it's just carried on growing from there. Um, and um, we sort of work with chefs in London and um, that's always really good fun. And then talk to people like you and, and um, Ginny Blom or, you know, Sarah or whoever and, um, and tell everybody about bees. And it's, it's just, it's great fun. What I love about every jar that you gave me, because you were very generous, you gave me several jars. Every jar almost tastes different. Different, And has yeah. a, almost a different colour. I'm looking at one now. I've got one here. 
Yeah, that's a natural set one. Chefs in particular must must remark on that compared to just shop-bought run-of-the-mill honey. And how yeah. important, Claire, is it that we try and buy British local honey? Because there's a, there's a labyrinth of strange labels, isn't there? You know, we see honey, there we think are. it's a natural product. We think it's automatically a local possible product. What should yeah. we look for on, on jars to make sure we're supporting British? The first thing to do, I, I suppose, is to, to make sure that you're buying a local local honey from somewhere that is close to you. By supporting your local beekeeper, you're actually supporting the sort of the local ecosystem of, of local producers and growers who are essential, aren't they? You know, in, in, when we were all in lockdown, everybody suddenly realised that the food chain was an enormous thing and can be broken or fractured very easily. And so staying close to home makes a lot of sense, you know, to have less air miles and, and all that kind of thing in food production is is pretty good. So then you're into the seasonality, which is what you were talking about earlier with the chefs and the forage that the bees experience is in, is just immediately reflected in the flavour of the honey. And so that's why if you go away on holiday somewhere, you know, you pick up a local jar of honey and it tastes of that place. It's quite, it's like wine or cheese, you know, and it, that's wonderful. So we're very lucky that we've got such a biodiverse area for the bees to forage from. And it's not, you know, we don't have we don't do agricultural pollination, which is a, obviously an industry. And almost the honey is almost a spin-off from that job that the bees do, as in pollinating a, a crop or an orchard, for example. So ours is all multifloral and seasonal. Monofloral honey tends to taste of just that one thing. So, of course, eating just one thing all the time can weaken immunity. And so it's thought that Actually, on a large scale, it's potentially one of the contributory factors that leads to colony collapse, whereas multifloral or polyfloral honey is much more complex. And it's brilliant for bee health because it is, by its very nature, biodiverse. So that, in turn, creates a honey that has a, a massive floral profile, which is what our customers and chefs enjoy. So the location of the hives is really important, and we seem to have got that really right. So when you say agricultural pollination, is that when, when hives are taken out to, to fields to, yeah. to specifically try and pollinate crops? You're not doing that. You're letting yes. the bees find their roots where they are and then they go and just find whatever flowers uh, locally in, in season. That's the difference, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, a field of borage will produce a particular type of honey. And so when it's on, a, on the label, you're talking about the labels and how things have to be set out on the label, that sort of food trading standards is quite tight on all of that regulation and so 227 grams is eight ounces so that's why it's a crazy number to pick out of the air but that's that's the equivalent of, of ounces so yeah a monofloral honey will have been tested to have a particular percentage of the pollen grains in the honey so that the label is very precise about what type of honey that is so whether it's heather honey or acacia honey or orange blossom honey or borage honey, for example, it'll have to have been proven to be that percentage so that it can go on the label. Wow. So, yeah. I suppose I should ask you both what what your favourite flowers for your bees to visit are to produce the flavour that you both like the most, shouldn't they? It's interesting. We've we've actually had honey tested by the Honey Monitoring Scheme and it's a, a wonderful organisation called the Centre of Ecology and Hydrology, and they test honey samples, and you can have a breakdown of the different taxa, the different species 
present in that honey sample. So one of the wonderful things about that was that there were sort of 26 to 45 different species in that honey, in that wow. tiny honey sample that we sent off. And one of the really lovely things was that one of the most prevalent things in it was lime. And of course, there's different lime trees in the UK, but one of the indicators of ancient woodland is the small-leaved lime. And and that was high on the pollen count uh, in that honey sample. So it was really nice to know that, yes, that was very affirmative that, yes, the bees are foraging on wild and ancient woodlands as well as everybody's gardens. So that's good. So trees are just as important for honeybees as as flowers. Yes, very much so. And I mean, we always say that the sycamore tree, when when that flowers, that's kind of an indication of swarm season. So it's we, we use forage, and that, that's what's on the Instagram account a lot. Is that we're checking forage constantly to start to find out what's coming in next. And um, mm. you know, it, we're we're talking at the moment in June, and there's a notorious natural forage gap. And it's called the June Gap. So that really hits home when you're just out there walking and you're seeing just grass and leaves and there's no flowers. Mm. Um, and we're hoping this year that the blackberry, which is wonderful for bees, all the blackberry and brambles, that's, that's going to kick in and every, you know, everybody, all the bees will be happy again. So <laughs> they'll be, they'll be flying around and, and gathering from that. So fingers crossed the, uh, the weather will pick up and get them all flowering so that the bees can enjoy them. So as a beekeeper for the June Gap, would you would you say that it's really good if, that gardens are full of, you know, alliums and foxgloves and honesty? Yeah, this is this is the critical time. Yes, definitely. Mm. If it wasn't there, then, you know, what would happen was that the bees would all would would eat all the honey that they'd already produced through right. the beginning of the year. So so then there wouldn't be any excess. So from a beekeeping perspective, if you were going to take any honey off, you would only take a little bit now. And that's if you thought that if you thought that there was going to be a problem in June, then you would obviously leave it on and let them carry on all the way through um through the summer and and um and wait till the end of the season. Yeah. Yeah. So Ian, your your whole life is bees, really, isn't it? You're a beekeeper, but day to day your job, your knowledge that you use is is your career and it's about bee health, isn't it? Yes, um, well, basically, I'm tw- it's 24-7, 365 days of a year. I keep my own bees and then also work for the National Bee Unit, which is part of DEFRA, Animal Part Health Agency, and we look after bee diseases, and I'm out looking for diseases every day of the week, and I get stung every day of the week. <laughs> That's fantastic. And the bee unit was set up in the, well, late 40s, early 50s to look at the health of bees and bee diseases. And it was, there were two types of bacterial diseases, which was American fowl brood and European fowl brood. Nothing to do with where they came from, but it's the same like Dutch elm. And these, both of these diseases were notifiable. So it was to look after the health of bees and American fowl brood is a spore-forming bacteria, which once you've got it, it lives forever, and it, it's a problem throughout the whole world. And European fowl brood is also similar and obviously damaging to bees. And the National Bee give advice to beekeepers and obviously deal with these two bacterial diseases. But we also deal with 
other non-native species such as the Asian hornet, small hive beetle and tropolelaps. The Asian hornet, the Vespa velutina, is an invasive, a successful predator. Yeah. Tell me about the Asian hornet, because I noticed that is something with climate change. I know it's been in France. Well, in France, it arrived in France probably, they say it was 96. And by 10 years later, we had the first incursions into the south of England and uh, Cornwall. And it spread throughout of the whole of France, some of Germany, the Netherlands, Spain. is sort of ambiguous. And it arrived, and it's a very successful predator. It's so successful that it's decimated the local bee population and insect population. It's not part, it's, it likes a honeybee because it's like a one-stop shopper, but it will predate any insect, wasp, or other hornets. Oh, and wow. uh, of course, that has an effect on birds and everything else. So, yeah. you know, it's part of it. It's, it's a disruptor, a major disruptor to the ecosystem. So the National Bee Unit also, we track and trace those when we find them. And it's a lot bigger, isn't it, than the, the native hornet? It's it's actually, it's not bigger. That's There's the giant Asian hornet, which is bigger. And then there's this, uh, this which is uh, Vespa velutina nigrothorax, which is, is smaller and it's swiftier. And you will probably, like my wasps, you don't really notice it until the end of the year. And you might see it feeding on, on ivy next to a wasp or something like this. Yes. You know, and it's really important that people are aware to be able to recognise it and also to um, report it, because mm. if uh, because the general public are the eyes and the ears of p- protecting the ecosystem, you can't rely just on one on the national bee unit or some beekeepers. Everybody should be aware. If you see a nation hornet feeding on on ivy you know is to to report it and then we can deal with it and try to stop it from coming into this country because once it arrives it will decimate our own european hornets and uh, bumblebees hoverflies wasps honeybees yeah mm. they certainly um are not um fussy yeah i read yesterday actually i was in in the local news agents and not on the front page you know the, the front page of the newspaper has a summary of what's in it there was a report of a bee-eater bird landing in the UK. <laughs> so I'm not sure what it will be like if they decide to start migrating into the UK from Africa. Well, they've been in France for a long time, and Have I don't they? think they've been much of a problem. Oh, good. So they, they won't be too troublesome. They'll just look pretty. and <laughs> Basically, it's, it's human impact that's, oh. um, that has resulted in all this. Yeah. When I worked at Kew Gardens, part of the, the job role was to help look after the hives in Kew Gardens, and... We used to have to put huge like mesh mesh cages around the hives during the winter. It's the gr- the green woodpecker. Yeah, for the woodpeckers. Well, obviously, a a, a, hive, a wooden hive is like a tree. Mm. A tree has grubs in it. Grubs yeah. are tasty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the woody wood and also badgers. I've heard get if they get a taste for honey. They do, and of course, a bumblebee nest, um, a bombus terrestria, is in the ground. And um, all those bees, they're all in the ground too. And yeah. the badgers can smell the bee, can smell them out and dig them up. 
So what what is this year looking like so far, health-wise and honey production-wise for your bees? Has it been a good year? It's been there cold, hasn't it? Yes, it's. it's I think it's uh, so far. Mm. I mustn't, you know, Touch wood, disturb yeah. it. So far, it looks good. Oh, good. And what have been the biggest impacts on on your honeybees with climate change and and with our activities that you've noticed? Have you had any disasters because of human activity? Well, I think the warm winters. Mm. Uh, have been a problem. Uh, mm. The winters are getting warmer, so bees are, don't have a natural brood break, which they would n- normally do in the winter, and they have an early summer. Okay. Um, so, yeah, difficult. So the warming and changing climate is making bees basically not go to sleep. Tell me, Claire, about the, the pollen colour charts that you put on your Instagram by um, someone called Dorothy Hodges. Was she a beekeeper? She was an artist, I think, oh, okay. and the pollen grains that she drew and um, analysed. Um, I think the original drawings are actually in the archive at Kew, so you can probably go and see them. And um, she did a lot of analysis about the colour of pollen on the bees' legs, that you know, from what they've gathered, and then put that under the microscope and then draw the, drew the pollen grains. And it was, it, it's so fascinating. Um, and then there's been a reprint of her book, but it was called The, the Pollen Loads of the Honeybee. And um, it's published by a book company called Ibra, which was set up by Dr. Eva Crane in the f- sort of 1940s, 50s. And um, it was uh, a way of researching and furthering knowledge about, about bees. Which is it's and it's still still going today. Did she ever work out what colour honey dahlia nectar produced? Well, the, the pollen from dahlias is usually an orange, but um, I shouldn't think that there would be the huge variety of dahlias back then that there are now, um, no. which is which is one you know it provides wonderful forage for mm. for bees in the gardens and the autumn. I'll have to track down whoever the nearest beekeeper to Sarah is and try and see what their their honey's like in September, because I'd imagine. I mean, when I'm at Perch Hill and there's huge single dahlia beds of Waltzing Matilda and Bishop of Auckland and all the, the starfish, they're literally dripping with nectar in September. Yeah, it is alive is. with with a lot of honeybees that must be coming from someone's local local hives. Yeah, lucky bees. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, really good. Claire, what would you like to see change in just general habits, uh, particularly, you know, of how parks are managed and, you know, streets? What, what do you think would help? Bees in general, by changes to local authority, sort of changes in how how areas of land are managed. Definitely less mowing and also less pesticides. I mean, both are massive contributors to pollinator decline. And it seems slightly nonsensical that they're carrying on. You know, when you see the streets being sprayed and you just brown grass or, you know, herbicides are just dreadful so not good not good for anybody really and yeah. and playgrounds and children and in such situations you know you're all it's not good for pollinators and it's not good for us no have you have you ever been stung by a bee uh once or twice yeah. but only in passing so nothing too terrible yeah. and um the thing to do is if, if you are stung by a bee is to scrape it off with your thumbnail as quickly as possible because the, oh. the little sting has a little venom sack attached and it will keep pumping into you so you have to get rid of it as quickly as you possibly can yeah yeah would you say lavender i mean everyone loves lavender would you say that's a very helpful thing for 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 beekeepers if you know every garden has lavender it is and easy to keep 
as are many herbs as well. So things like marjoram and all the chives and rosemary and thyme, you know, all very good and mint too. So all very low maintenance, but great for great for bees mm. and good good in the kitchen too. And have you got a garden at home? We do. It's it's not very big, a bit like yours at, at uh, in Nottingham, but um, we do put pollinator friendly things in there, and it's always good to see them all enjoying it. Mm. Wonderful. And if anybody wants a, a jar of your honey, what's the how do you get this lovely? Well, it's limited edition, I suppose, isn't it, honey? It's, it's not, very small. It's, it's quite, very, very yeah, small. It is artisan. Yeah. So how do people buy it from you? I'm afraid it's it's only available in local delis and independent oh, stockists. Okay. So we're very small. So that's why you should support your, your local beekeeper. Mm. And it will say, won't it, on the jar that it's local honey? If you know, It, it should say, say where it's, yes, it, sorry. It should say who's produced it, mm. where it's from. And when it was made, and it should have a best before date, and uh, and then the grammage as well. Yeah. So you know exactly where it's come from and what what it is. What should people do if if they walk into their garden and find a swarm of bees? What would be the first? Because it does happen to people, and and I hear awful stories about people sometimes ringing the wrong person up, and the swarm, poor swarm gets you know, just jucked into a bin bag or something horrible like that. What can we do if we find a swarm of honeybees? Uh, the best thing to do is to contact the BBKA, um, which is the British Beekeepers Association. Right. And if you put in your postcode, it'll come up with your local division. Then the local division will have a swarm list of people who are beekeepers who are well, willing to come out and and help collect the swarm. So um, and then they'll come out and put them in a little box and and take them somewhere much safer. So yeah. and relocate them basically, mm. so that uh, the bees will be safe. And is it is it true, Claire, that if it's a really hot summer, honeybees will find a, a water source and take water back to the hive, or is that is yeah. that not true? Well, bees need water like all of us, and they they need it for different reasons, and not least making wax. So oh, they right. need they need water to actually create wax to build their honeycomb. So okay. they need it all the time. And then also they could use it to dilute stores that they might have collected already. Stores usually will granulate over time. So the honey in the, in the cells needs to be like diluted so that they can feed the colony. Mm. Ivy honey particularly granulates very quickly. And so in the wintertime, that's tricky because the bees have to go out to get water to dilute the honey stores. Wow. But then they're putting themselves at risk by making that flight because of the cold weather and whatnot. So it can be a bit of a, a tricky situation where they've got the stores, but it's too cold to go out to get water to dilute them. So, mm. And how do they, because when you look at bees, they've got what you call the pollen basket, isn't it? Which is like the lumps of, of pollen, is that right, on their legs? But how would they take water back? It's like little guard hairs on their legs to collect the pollen. It, they have a stomach that they can ingest the water and then regurgitate it. Oh, I spit it out. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that some are actually on water carrier duty and you'll see them flying to the hive and then back to the water source and back to the hive and back to the water source so that's their job for the day wow yeah so we should all have a little just a, a bird bath full of little pebbles so there's just Definitely. a centimeter of Definitely. water so they can land and yeah, yeah. and it, it's really fascinating because you can actually see them when they put their little proboscis in their tongue they can there's sort of a pump action of their abdomen that's literally sort of <laughs> sucking mm. it all up and then they'll take it home i suppose what i should should end on the question is do you think there are enough beekeepers in the uk and do you think there should be more 
gardens that are just full of flowers to support those bees or do we need more beekeepers probably need less beekeepers okay. <laughs> we probably need more people like you who are actually planting forage for all sorts of pollinators that's the thing i think the, apparently the density of urban beekeeping is so vast that it is putting things at risk right i don't know if, if it's actually the same as in the, in the in the landscape you know our our apiary sites are always quite small and have a very low number of hives on them so it's not about kind of carbon footprint and how much honey you make and all that kind of stuff it's to do with not overloading the local ecosystem mm. with lots and lots of hives having said that though the natural ecosystem of pollinators are often quite species specific so although honeybees and bumblebees can utilize all sorts of different flowers because of their tongue lengths they also have a way of not competing with each other because a long-tongued bee will be able to get access forage from one particular flower and a short-tongued bee which is what a honeybee is will use a different species to to gather their food source from so and some bees are actually literally species specific so you know you've got ivy bees or whatever and they they're only around and about for that particular flower um, and and that's their season done, you know. So solitary bees are quite dedicated sometimes. Mm. So um, I love I love the fact that you do know so much about bees. It really does show that you are bee people, not just honey bee people. And I think that's why I've always respected and wanted to do a conversation with you because you do care about bees in general. And of course, mm. without the bees, mm. we won't be us, and there won't be honey, and there won't be a a living planet, will there? Yeah. So. Um, Thank you for looking after the bees. And for those of you that want to learn more about bees, Claire and Ian's Instagram account, Epping Good Honey, is just a wealth of knowledge and education. So have a look at Instagram and give yourself a proper artisan honeybee education. Ian and Claire, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Arthur. It's been lovely. Thank you. Thanks for listening to that incredible episode. I've, my brain is buzzing with so much bee knowledge um, and wanting to help bees of all shapes and sizes more than ever. And also wanting to help people like Ian and Claire who are really doing their best to look after their honeybees and keep them beautifully and in a very ethical way. Next week, Sarah will be back with me. So join us then. You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahaven.com.